There's no founding team, it's not a thing. You know, you can be proud of the number you were in a company, but at the end of the day, you should title as if you're like two steps removed from where you are. Title like a hundred person company. Compensation alone is like probably the sixth most important thing, especially when you're younger in your career, because early days in your career are not the material wealth generating time of your life. They're the material knowledge generating time of your life. To optimize for a company supporting you well over time is a massive mistake because your incentives are not aligned. That's a failing idea. However, people are inherently social creatures that want to help. And so what you should be optimizing for early in your career is working for a person who will invest in you and help you. Jake, did I tell you this? I think I did. I remember just joining Clavio and I was like, man, I want to be Jake. I was at Clavio Boston and I think you were like doing this like speech about stuff, right? And I was like, Steve Jobs, Jake Cohen, me one day, right? I was so honored to be on the other KPE about two years later. It was kind of like a dream come true for me. Yeah, I think Jake is one of the best, if not the best product person I ever worked with. The charisma, the passion, and the ability to align priorities across different parties really made him a force of nature, especially in the earlier days of Clavio. I also witnessed his uh, career growth from director of product to head of product and recently promoted to VP of Shopify. And uh, for our listeners, Jake looks awfully similar to Jake Gyllenhaal. So when you hear his voice, just imagine a sexy version of Jake Gyllenhaal. Now that I'm done kissing ass and hopefully that part gets cut out, Welcome to the show, Jake. It's been a long time coming. We've worked together for quite a bit, and we all know each other as personal friends, so great to have you on the show. I'm going to dive right in and ask you the big question. What do you think of the metaverse? Well, let's define metaverse first so that we know we're talking about the same thing, and then I can tell you my take on it. I'm choosing to define the metaverse as the virtual sphere where people connect, and in particular with a video component to it that is not a live stream video like a Zoom call or a Google Meet or whatever else. I'm pretty bullish on it. I think that like general communication technology has advanced so insanely quickly. Like I talked to my parents about what it's like to work today and the idea that you can work remotely with people in China or anywhere else, maybe not China because of uh, governmental issues, but anywhere else with the click of a button, it's just remarkable and it's changed everything. And so If you look at larger long-term trends, fundamental truths are humans are social, interactivity is important, companies are clusters of humans that need to exchange ideas to be able to figure things out, and technology advances to get closer to real life as possible. Ipso facto, it stands to reason that there will be better ways for us to connect physically remotely, but virtually together over time. And so the question then is like, what what does that look like? I am not, sorry, it's a very long-winded answer, but I am not bullish on the like gamey version of this. So I don't know if y'all remember, but there was something called Second Life in like late 1990s that my father used to like play with a lot. I think it was one of the first manifestations of this like metaverse, but it served no purpose outside of having some sort of caricature online where you could go, you know, walk around. I'm not a gamer, so like I don't think that's a thing. But I do think that a more visceral way for people to connect, I suppose this is the enterprise use case is totally a thing. And, you know, maybe as I'm talking now, there's like a real world Sims or something that could exist. But uh, I certainly, that's not my primary use case. I'm looking at more in the spirit of collaboration and company building. Part of this uh, podcast is for us to get to know you better uh, as a person. So let's go way back. want to hear and understand your origin story. So where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Natick in just outside Boston, Massachusetts. Natick is uh, actually an interesting town given the surrounding towns because it's the only one that I'm aware of within like maybe like 30 miles that has all three real estate classifications zoned. So that's residential, commercial, and industrial. And so it's a fairly big town. Uh, That could be totally false in terms of other ones, but that's true about Natick. You know, we've got factories there. It's noted for this giant mall that it has um, that everyone goes to the Natick Mall. But then also there are like farms there. It's just like a very diverse physical area. 
But also as a result of that, there's like a pretty widespread of socioeconomic conditions, right. but like few schools. So there's just like, it's just like a very diverse kind of crew. Right. I grew up in like the farm side. And so it was very quiet <laughs> on my street and it was a long drive to school, long 15 minutes or whatever. And it was like fine. It was a sort of like stereotypical suburban you know, middle class, or I guess maybe upper middle class, I guess, depending if you look at like suburban Ohio or something like that type town. I don't know, nothing particularly special to write home about. I think I guess like one interesting tidbit about my background, which is a little self-deprecating, but honest, I always wanted to go to private school growing up because I had this belief that private schools had better access to resources. And as a result, I could learn more faster, but I was overweight and did not do many extracurricular activities. <laughs> and so basically, my I got waitlisted everywhere because I was not a particularly well-rounded individual from an application standpoint. I had like good but not exceptional test scores, zero sports, and like did dorky things after school. I didn't like do activities. And so I didn't. And I actually think in retrospect, that was one of the best things in the world that could have ever happened to me because I think private schools provide an inaccurate microcosm of the world. And it's way, way better to get a you know more accurate slice of life in the world because it helps you understand or at least start to understand how different and diverse the world is and how to connect with all these sort of different people and be normal. Um, a lot of my friends that went to these fancy private schools are like stuck in this little upper echelon of society and are like, you know, unprepared to like handle the world at large. So I don't know. Nice. That's something. So, so you, you were well-rounded physically. But not in terms. Of I had academics. so many jokes to make there, and I was <laughs> correct. Like, maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> correct. Yes, that's where I come in. Cool, cool. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, both Hanson and I can definitely resonate with that point, right? Being abroad, what being overweight as a kid, I was for what I'm, I'm still overweight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean being abroad from a different culture, uh, right? Where naturally we need to actually appreciate the different side uh, to survive. So I definitely know what you're talking about uh, to have a diverse uh, approach to things. Uh, so I will say actually two more things. Number one, credit to my parents. They really believed in travel. So I was very, very lucky to see a lot of things and from a lot of different places growing up, um, which like at school made me a little less popular, but made me much more globally aware, uh, which I think is exceptionally beneficial. Number two, what was weird about my household growing up, this is not really about the town, but my family so my mother started a company when I was one. And my father, a few years later, actually went and worked for her. And so it was an advertising agency. And so my whole life growing up, our dinner table conversations were about how do we get that new client and someone's going to leave. How do we get uh, them to stay? Okay. And how do we make sure our employees are happy? And literally, I have memories Sunday nights. They had a media buying company. So what that meant was a company that wanted to do advertising, typically broadcast, so TV, radio, or out of home, would um, hire my parents' company to like do that work because it's kind of complicated to buy efficiently. And they would get, this is way back, you get paper invoices in the mail from all the different stations that said, this is when we ran um, your, your ads. And so every Sunday night, my parents would have a stack of orders and a stack of invoices, and they would go highlight discrepancies and use it to negotiate that coming Monday. And so they used to basically hire my sister and I for free <laughs> uh, to sit in the living room. And they, have you ever seen the movie Clueless? There's a scene in Clueless where the father is this like high-powered lawyer, and he's looking for certain calls in a certain time window. And everyone in the family's in there like highlighting <laughs> through all these transcripts. Like that was every Sunday night in my house. That's what we did. We would highlight discrepancies in the in invoices that my parents would use to negotiate to get their clients free additional spots. So that kind of gives you a flavor of what it was like in my house growing up. It's very um, business oriented. So that's where the entrepreneurship and passion for e-commerce come from. Uh, well, passion for, for small businesses. E-commerce is kind of just like a, I don't know, sign of the times. But right. I'm very passionate about if someone has literally thrown their conservatism to the wind to pursue something that they believe should exist. Yeah. Like how romantic and noble is it to help that come to life and be true? Like, yeah. is there a greater calling in the world than to help people achieve their dreams? I don't think there is. I want to ask you how you sort of went from being, you know, child Jake growing up in Natick, you know, upper middle class, somewhat entrepreneurial. Why did you choose political philosophy and Italian as your major in college? How did that happen? 
<laughs> one is interesting and one is funny. So I am Jewish. And when I was in high school uh, and a little more attuned to the world, I became very confused by what I saw uh, some people in the world doing. Specifically, I saw people murdering others and giving up their lives to save others in the name of religion. And that made no sense to me because I think, personal opinion, religion is a man-made manifestation to establish a sense of order when there, it was hard to have one, a, a sense of community, a sense of culture, whatever else. That's a personal opinion. And so like, if that was true, I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, <laughs> We invented this. Why are we killing people? It seems crazy to me. And so I tried to answer that question in high school, but I really couldn't. Um, I actually almost became a rabbi to try and answer that question. I'm glad I did not. And when I went to college, I wanted to answer that question. What makes people do what they do? And I thought the answer was in religion because of the context that I found the problem. And so I went, took some religious philosophy classes, but it was a little bit too like why religions believe or like set up certain fundamental beliefs and like how those emerge and how it came different. I'm like, this is not what I'm after. And I was speaking to an advisor and they said, you know, have you tried, you know, political, I took sociology, all these different things. Uh, have you tried political philosophy? And I was like, no, what's up with that? And I remember the first day I took intro to political philosophy with Professor Carmola, who I still talk to. And I literally within 15 minutes, we were talking about Thucydides account of the Peloponnesian War. And I was completely enamored. And I was like, this is what I need to know. And it turned out to me, the answer between what makes people do what they do has more to do with um, self-interest and the relationship between entities, you know, person to person, person to state. And so anyways, that's a very political science view on things. And so I, I'm so intellectually stimulated and, and satisfied in that arena. So I just kind of like kept going and ended up having a sort of specialization in the American political founding and sub-Saharan African development, which like I could go on, we could do like two weeks on, I could just talk forever. So it was that. And then sophomore year, I knew well, I needed like four classes or whatever. And my requirements in college were not before 9am and not on Monday or Friday. So it ended up being that the classes left that I could take were uh, one was cells and organelles, which is um, basically like a pre-med class that I really wanted to take because it's very interesting. But everyone told me it's the hardest class in college. So that would be really stupid to do or Italian. <laughs> and I did not, I really didn't think I was a language person, but I learned that a lot of the pretty girls took Italian and you tend to sing and eat good food and hang out. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. And about halfway through the semester, my Italian teacher pulled me aside after class and she said, I have news for you. And I said, what's that? And she said, you will love Italy and Italy will love you. So you're a year behind. You now need to do a summer course so that you can catch up and you will be going abroad. And I was just like, okay, sounds good to me. And when I got back from being abroad, I was like two credits shy of a major. So I said, well, I might as well round this out. So that's how that happened. Nice. Sounded like a good time. It was yeah. awesome. <laughs> nice. How long were you in Italy for? I was there for a year. My intention was to be for one semester because I wanted to do one semester in Italy and one semester in Australia. And when I sort of filed to do that, the college, I went to Middlebury, which is a very language oriented college. They said, you can't go to another uh, region in the world that speaks English if you can speak another language. And I was like, that is ridiculous. All these people go to an English speaking countries, people in London, people in Australia. Why is it that because I learned a skill, I'm precluded from participating in that culture? And I ran it all the way up to the president of the college and just got like, nope, you can't go. So I said, screw you guys. I'm staying here. So I stayed for the year. And it was awesome. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I actually thought you were Italian uh, when I first met you. Uh, but no, I'm not. But when I was in, I got ended up being able to speak uh, Italian very, very well. And I actually tricked many Italians that I was Italian because I look, I guess, or at least I did. I wasn't so white. I did look sort of Mediterranean because of my skin. But no, I, my heritage is in Eastern Europe. How do you the say, passion for wine and good cheese? It developed strongly in Italy. <laughs> how do you say you're a dumb person in Italian? Dumb. I don't know how to say dumb, but you might say like, say stupido or like, say una persona uh, stupidissima or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> All right. We'll make this into the highlight. Cool. All right. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you, you studied, people would say, something really unrelated to tech. Right. Yeah. So, how did you break into tech? My parents were basically salespeople in media. And when I graduated college, I knew that Italian politics was a poor career choice, but I did not know what I wanted to do. 
So I interviewed 10 successful grownups, quote unquote. And I said, you know, I believe in a meritocracy. I want to bet on myself. For whatever reason, I wanted to put on a suit and kick ass. I don't know why. Um, but I did not want to work in finance because I thought that I probably wrongly believed that that industry overprescribed how you should live your personal life. And so I said, given those three things, what should I do? <laughs> and 60% of them, believe it or not, said commercial real estate. Now, mind the times, this was in mid-2000s, which you know was a very lucrative industry at the time. So I said, fine, I'll do that. And so anyways, there's a great story on how I got into that business. But I got into that business. And then, of course, the market crashed. Um, I was doing luxury retail real estate in Manhattan. <laughs> like the two worst industries to be exposed to uh, all into one on a 100% commission job in New York City at 22. It was pretty intense. So I had to switch out of that. And then through people that my parents knew, I networked through that and ended up at CBS, like ABC, NBC, CBS, basically doing a sales job. Failed at the sales part and then transitioned to a more strategic part. Basically, that company would go out to like Fortune 50 B2C brands and pitch custom deals. And I was bad at finding the opportunities, but I was very good at winning them. Because uh, I was good at marketing and I was good at ideas and like how to connect with people. And so I did that job for a while. And after a couple of years, I kind of, um, this is in 2011, and TechCrunch was like exploding and Groupon was exploding and all these things were happening. And I just looked at the people who shall rename nameless who were running the company. And I just, I was like, that's not who I want to be when I grow up. Mm. Like, that's not, I don't close my eyes and see myself as that person. Right. And so maybe this isn't the right thing for me. And so I started to think about what would that be? And so when I close my eyes and think of the people that I looked up to, they were generally speaking entrepreneurial, not necessarily technology, but just like entrepreneurial. And as TechCrunch was going on, I'm reading all these things, software will eat the world, kind of that's when Andreessen kind of came out and said that. And as I just like thought about it more, I'm like, I just think technology is going to just software is going to eat the world. And so I better get some exposure there and figure it out. And um I can, I did this big analysis on should I go to business school or should I start a company because those are the two fastest ways to learn I believed at the time and for my skill set and for the opportunity cost and the actual cost to me it made much more sense to start a company and so I did a whole bunch of work to find like what I believed and what I cared about shockingly it was in support of small businesses it was effectively an anti group on I wanted to make and it turned out that at the time, I had a mutual friend from growing up that wanted to start a very, very similar company. And I reached out to him and I said, Hey, man, I'm going to do something really similar. So, you know, do you want to fight for 10 years or work together for 10 years? Your call. And he said, Let's work together. And that's how I started um, at Privy. Interesting. So your friend was already building something similar. And then you were like, Hey, can I work on this with you? Or... I had started to scope out what I wanted to do as a sort of anti-Groupon. The philosophy at the time was Groupon helped aggregate demand, and then they packaged and sold that at a terrible price to businesses that didn't know how to get demand. But I said, bullshit. Um, Google is bringing demand to their door, which is to websites, but they don't know how to get listed, and they don't know how to convert that interest into a relationship. So all we have to do is help them with like very simple SEO tactics, which like large brands and businesses that have budget bandwidth and expertise know how to do, take the very simple version of those things, make it very affordable and give it to everyone. And they can basically take all the people who come to their website, turn them into email addresses and start to communicate and connect with them. That's what I wanted to build. Ben, literally the week I was like talking to my parents about it, announced on Facebook, which is where everyone was at the time. Hey, I'm starting this company. This is what we do, which was almost identical. And so I reached out to him and I'm like, you decide how you want this to go, but I'm going to do it. It's just a question of if I do it with you or without you. And he said, come on, let's do it together. Awesome. Cool. What's the biggest uh, gain or what's the thing you learned from that experience as a co-founder? So much. Um, my God, so many things. Things like, I guess, like to list them. Number one, if you have two competing directions, don't go all in, test both first. Number two, titles early in a company have a tremendous impact on culture and internal mobility. And that gets especially pronounced if things don't go right. I think just like you got to really understand unique economics and like model against an LTV over CAC. And if it's not working, you need to have like credible hypotheses on how to either increase prices or decrease CAC. 
um, and like connect this with like what I learned at Clavio, which is, man, trial is everything, which is a big thesis of mine from like a investment standpoint. And this is one of the reasons I'm a little bit bouncing everywhere, but this is just like learnings. I actually, before joining Clavio, my final two candidates for that position uh, in my career was actually Zayas <laughs> and Clavio. And I'm very lucky to have made the right choice there. But the reason that I made that choice, actually, Zayas had a better product overall at the time, but it was all about trial. Because the harder it is to try, the longer it takes to try, the less, the more interest wanes, the higher price has to be, therefore, the higher support has to be, therefore, the smaller the market ends up being. And it's just like, it's amazing how trial unlocks and restricts markets like unbelievably. And so you can solve a lot of the CAC issue by having very easy trial, because then you can do a freemium model and referral becomes easier to capitalize on. Um, but I really did not understand that when we were doing Privy. Now I like very intimately understand those dynamics and how they fit. So there's a lot of things to unpack there. Let's dive into one of them. So you, you mentioned that titles matter in a small startup, which is contrary to people like me. So could you explain why do you think that's the case? Yeah. So what I believed at the time and what I think a lot of people believe at the time is, hey, when you're a startup, it's really hard to get good people. And what you want is someone who's sort of proven themselves, but you know has been passed over for whatever reason from a large company. You want to pull them in and give them a chance. And what those people are really looking for often is, and this is actually, this segues into a much larger topic that I care very deeply about, those people tend to look for title because I think people optimize for a local maximum of title because they're trying to get increased salary when it turns out that's actually the worst way to generate wealth for yourself. But I'll leave that aside for a moment. And so as a result, founders tend to be like, well, I'll give them the good title and bring them in just so I can get them because they can't pay more cash, right? And like equity is sacred. And so what do you do? turns out it's a huge mistake because what ends up happening is as companies grow, employees want to grow with that company. And the perception that they have when they come in is like, if I'm a 10-person company, I'm making up arbitrary things here, but if I'm like a 10-person company and I'm like head of whatever, I should be head of whatever forever. Well, what happens when you become a 100-person company and you find a legit VP of whatever and the VP of whatever is supposed to come in, this person who's been bleeding with you in the trenches, who is head of whatever, what do you do with them? Right. You're a director now? And they're like, what the hell? How do I explain this demotion when it's not a demotion? You know? Yeah. Or worse, you get someone who was that VP somewhere else and you bring them in as a C and they're not that good. They don't scale. Right. So now you're stuck with this choice. You have to fire them or demote them, which is terrible because you don't want to do that because they have so much institutional knowledge. They're usually a cultural champion. People look up to them, love to be with them. They have so much context and empathy for your customer base. They can teach everyone internally. Right. You don't want to burn them and fire them over a title. You know, yeah. like it's crazy, but humans tend to be very ego driven. And so title is the sort of identification in the work sphere of like who we are and our worth, which is a wrong metric. But it's right. what most people tend to do. What's the solution to this then? Accurate titles and don't do heads up. No C's, no C's until you get to a certain point. No V's until you get to a certain point. Just make it like a, a rule. Founders. Yeah. Yep. There's no founding team is not a thing. You know, you can be proud of the number you were in a company. But at the end of the day, you should title as if you're like two steps removed from where you are. Title like a 100-person company because you're building infrastructure. Titling is infrastructure. It's human capital infrastructure. And so when you are small, you need to build infrastructure to be like later, but hire people who are scrappy enough and dynamic enough and entrepreneurial enough to like, yeah, okay, so I'm like, you know, director of CS, but like, guess what? I do product too. <laughs> Great. You need more of those people. And yes, over time, their scope will sort of shorten. But what that means is they had a broader scope with a lower title and you tighten it. Guess what? It's a lot easier to, mm. to help them go up there from a knowledge and capacity standpoint than it is to say, you have this big title, you have to do all the things. And then you're like, you're either already there or you're not there because I need someone to get us to a thousand. And it's like, it's just hard. Right. That's very insightful. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think... Well, We've seen this to some extent in like different companies uh, we've worked at, but also I think maybe it was Crossing the Chasm or some book actually goes into this, right? You have a founding team dealing with the feelings because like the people you need to sort of fight the war to take over the market versus the people you need to stay and build and scale mm -hmm. the company are kind of like often different people. That's and if right. you keep the fighters, you know, the early revolutionaries around and now you have a government and you have to roll over, you know, this more peaceful and 
I don't know how far that analogy goes, but you know, like it's a different skill set. Uh, and traditionally, if you look at like history, right, this happens a lot, right? You someone leads a revolt, takes over the country. The traditional thing to do is you either give all these generals that fought with you super high positions of power, and now all of a sudden they're ruling over some province that they have no idea how to do their jobs, and it just gets really terrible. Or in order to eliminate your threats, because all these generals have so much power over the military, you just kill them all, and then you like appoint new people, which is also super unfair for the people that bled alongside you in the trenches. So it's like a perennial problem that we face. Yeah, we, I would love to talk about like the difference between the Persian Empire and like the Mongol Empire specifically, and like wait, like why one works better than the other one. But let's save that for another time. Yeah. But the interesting thing, the other thing, like like I like we said, like dealing with feelings is like a real thing. And what ends up happening is everyone very naturally takes a biased, self-centered perspective on what they see and the information that they're gathering. And founders are taking the perspective of, I have a market I want, I need to go get it. And everything that I do is in pursuit to increase the likelihood and the speed by which that is true. Employees are looking at, I need to make good choices for myself. And so what ends up happening is, it is a very natural feeling for a person who is, quote, given everything to this company to feel cheated, passed over, um, not valued when the founder is getting to the point looking at the market that in order for them to unlock or accelerate adoption of that market, I need incremental or different things. And it's really, really hard for an employee that doesn't have that context to understand empathy for that. And it's really, really hard for the founder especially if they're, uh, this is a generalization, but more technically inclined and therefore sometimes more task oriented to care. <laughs> it's like tough shit, man. Like this, we're trying to do this, like help or don't. And that dynamic is not well appreciated by many company builders that are first timers. Because typically when you think about building a company, as founders do, they're looking for the mechanics on how to succeed in capitalizing a market and not the mechanics on how to build a scaled and successful team because that's a second order problem. And they only figure it out when they're in the middle of it and inevitably, you know, fuck it up a ton of times as we most certainly did. Yeah, I mean, I witnessed that firsthand, right, uh, at Clavio. I mean, last thing I would say on that is uh, this alignment becomes harder and harder when you're hiring people that's not, I know you don't believe in funding team, but let's say people less than 100 join the company because you just, you know, get a... It's much smaller proportion of the pie, right? So that alignment becomes even harder for employees to appreciate kind of the market side of things. Yeah. And in fact, actually, I didn't even realize these are all as connected as they are, but it makes sense. But I am exceptionally passionate about two things in particular. One, helping people find great jobs defined as the right fit, um, which is not necessarily compensation oriented. That's one component of it. Um, but then two, finding a, a more efficient distribution of labor against the sort of needs or problems of the world. That's like my like, I don't know, like 100 year life pursuit. I don't have 100 years left, but what it meant long time life <laughs> pursuit. But like a lot of that comes out of the fact that like, A, I, I, we screwed that up, I think. B, I had to think really long and hard. You didn't ask this question yet. We'd probably get to it. But like, hey, privy didn't work out. What'd you do? <laughs> yeah. uh, and like, it was really hard because as a founder, you've done everything. I mean, scrubbed toilets, sold, built product. I built an entire marketing funnel. I literally did everything. Um, I even designed screens. Like no one should use screens I designed. And um, when you come out and you go look for a job and it's like, okay, you know, this is like a director of sales position. You're like, cool. So like I can help you with everything. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that's not, that's not what we need your help for. It's like, well, what am I called? Like what do people even buy here? And so I went through this like a very existential process to try and figure out who am I and what can I do and who cares about that and what's it worth? And that process helped me appreciate that compensation alone is like probably the sixth most important thing, especially when you're younger in your career, because early days in your career are not the, the, the material wealth generating time of your life. They're the material knowledge generating time of your life. But most people that come out of college end up making a bad pick because one job is paying them, I'm making up numbers here, $85,000 instead of like $60,000. And $20,000 yeah. when you're 22 years old is a huge deal. But if you're not making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time you're like, whatever, 
and you could have gotten there faster as a result of picking the less compensating job, you made a critical long-term error. And so many people do that. Um, And I'm very passionate about like correcting the way people think about, you know, how to architect their career in that capacity. And it came from a lot of these mistakes. Yeah. What has your path led to, right? What's after Privy? What led you to Clavio? Kind of a funny story. So I'm going to like really tell it. So the reason that I left Privy was um, I'd been there three and a half years. I was due to go get married. We were running out of money. Unique economics were not looking good. We had arrived at a handshake agreement to be acquired by a great company <clears throat> that was going public at the time. And while I left for my wedding and subsequent honeymoon, um, <clears throat> the deal was kind of going through legal. And when I got back Monday morning, I found out that the deal had entirely collapsed while I was gone and they were out. And we had like no prospects and like two weeks of cash left. And I was like, all right, well, you know, part of the ride, buckle up, let's go figure it out. That Thursday night, I needed to blow off some steam. So I had a few drinks with some friends. And that Friday morning, you know, sometimes when you've had a, a few too many, you're in that hazy period, pre hungover, you're just like in a cloud. I was in that vibe. And my wife, now wife, four day wife, <laughs> came tearing out of the bathroom and said, I'm pregnant. And we, that was like not the plan. And I was like, you're what? <laughs> like, that's like, what? how did that happen? I mean, I know that happened, but you know. Uh, what a week. And, yeah, it was my first week of being married. I like uh, lost our company effectively and now had a kid on the way. Um, you wonder why I'm so great. And so it kicked off this like, we agreed I needed to go have a steady income. And so I, I went to go figure that out. And that's when I was like, well, who's going to pay me? You know, like, you know, it's like not successful, I guess, like, you know, co-founder at this point. Um, and so I went on this like whole process, which informed how to find a great job, which again, we can come back to. And I ended up at this company called Data Gravity, which I was enamored with from a, capac- a potential standpoint and a uh, proof point standpoint, which was specifically investors in Dreesen, Charles River, General Catalyst, and CRV. I said Charles River. Who's the other one? Excel uh, were the big investors. They raised $92 million. They wanted to like revolutionize data storage. It seemed very, very cool. And I just like, for whatever reason, I was obsessed. It was in Nashua. So I was driving from Boston to Nashua back and forth every single day. And that company ended up failing. There's a wonderful set of lessons around go-to-market, early indicators, and like what to do that I could share, I guess, another time. That company ended up failing. And I had Cobra up to a certain day, which I was like two or three months after I got laid off. And I had an under one-year-old. And so I was like, I need to find a job in 60 days, basically. Wait, so quick question there. So yeah. Privy had two weeks of cash left when you were looking for an exit, you know, a new job, basically. And then you went to Data Gravity. What happened with Privy? Because it's still around. Ben, who was the founder, did uh, what I think is like the grittiest, most difficult, and most oppressive turnaround job of anyone that I'm aware of. We had two ideas early on in Privy. One was to provide a solution to a scoped market that was fully closed loop and verticalized. So we could just go tackle that. And then we would like go to next ones. Or we would take a very horizontal approach, be industry agnostic and tackle one piece of the funnel. And the advertising side said, hey, we should go do that, which is basically collect contacts and we'll figure out what to do with them later. I think that was probably the, well, I ended up being the right choice. And then the other one was, no, 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 we're going to do the business that is least likely to go online that needs to convert online attention to in-store activity, which logically made a lot of sense. That was restaurants. And we built this very effective product. We converted 8% of website visitors into email addresses and 25% of those into in-store customers. But it was the eighth most important problem for restaurants. And so Mm. we never lost people, but it was hard to get them. So anyways, Ben, in that period, changed the team and went to that other idea that we wanted to go do. And ended up taking Privy to a point where it got acquired by Attentive last year um, and did very, very well for himself. Very impressive. So anyways, that's what happened there. So I went to Data Gravity. I had two months left. I went through this big process and I changed my criteria of what I was looking for to evaluate whether or not a company was like a good one. And I was at a point where Drizzly wanted to hire me to run product, um, which is weird. A bunch of companies wanted me to run product, but I never like officially run product before, but whatever, that's a different conversation. And so I was like, all right, yeah, I think, I think this is good. Um, And they said, well, I go talk to our investor. Like he's amazing. He'll convince you that this is the right choice of the, of the other companies you're talking to. And I came and I sat down with him. His name is TJ who come, I work with now separately. (laughs) He's amazing. And I sat down after 20 minutes, he goes, Jake, you are awesome. Um, But you are not going to work for Drizzly. 
And I was like, what did I do? (laughs) I blew it. Like I was on the finish line. Like I need a job. And he said, you need to talk to these Klaviyo guys. Um, And it was weird because I had never heard of Klaviyo and I was very in the scene. And he's like, there's just a good fit. I don't know what you would do. I don't know what they need, but it's a good fit. And so I went on his um, introduction and I sat down with um, AB and Ed. uh, And what was supposed to be a 30 minute conversation turned into a two and a half hour conversation which if you know them and uh, like uncommon and anyways, there's a whole bumpy road of how we ended up getting to like, yes, you know, come work at Clavio, but that's kind of how it happened. Jake, there's so many things we could dive into. We just don't <laughs> have time. Uh, I'll, I'll just for the listeners, for the completeness of the story, there's a happy ending to it. Well, it's not an ending. Happy development still going. Jake uh, is now the VP of Shopify at Clavio. And along the way, Jake was the director of product. That's how actually I ended up getting hired was Jake's work. And uh, yeah, Jake's doing great. And I, but I'd love to shift us to the next section, which is sort of the last part of the podcast, given the time constraints. Jake, you seem really passionate about this career architecture stuff, and you seem to have a lot of wisdom there to share. Is that something you want to dive into for the last part? Or is there like a different topic you'd rather go into? I, I, there's a lot of topics I can go into. That I think, I don't know, it's apropos, and I think it's going to become more meaningful as like all these layoffs are happening. Sure. So I'm happy to like yeah. share my thinking about it if it's interesting to people. Yeah, let's do that. yeah. So can we start with the basics? Uh, you were mentioning actually before when we chatted before this, uh, you were going to write a book potentially yeah. about, you know, career architecture. Can you start with definitions? Like what is career architecture? The choices that you make at various points uh, to inform like how you spend your professional time, I guess is the way I'd characterize that. So the core philosophy that makes this approach different is that the goal of a career is to get as best compensated and to have the best quality life doing things that you're uniquely able to provide. That is like not how careers are defined. Careers are defined as like where you work (laughs) and like which companies pay you effectively. There's this sort of American dream. You can go do anything. Like you could be a surfer and it's like, yeah, you can be, but like, that's not like a, that's a, it's not a career. It's like a, the intent to be paid for your hobby. It's like a little bit different. And my fundamental belief, and I credit my mom for believing this, is that every person has a unique and distinct value. And your job as a good employer is to find what that value is. Um, But I believe that the onus is on the individual to understand that value. Because if you can understand that value, then you can find who values it. And that's a sales job. And that's what like finding a job really is. So what most people are really bad at is understanding what their actual value is. Uh, Most people look outwardly and they say, what does the world buy? And which of those buckets do I fit in? And they actually change who they are to fit in that bucket to get Mm -hmm. compensated. And I think that's a mistake. I think, and the reason I think it's a mistake is companies hire people to solve problems. But they, in an effort to try and like find the best solution, they invent what they think is the right solution. This is a job Mm -hmm. description. Um, and then they hedge against being wrong by uh, asking for people to have like way more experience than they actually need. And then they go out and they say, here's the solution I want. And here's the level I want, which is perfect. Oh, and by the way, I can only pay this. And so you have this classic problem with people, you know, young people all the time are like, they want someone who's done this job for 10 years, but I've only been out of the workforce for three years. So I'm not like, that's crazy, but I could totally do this job. That happens all the time. Right. And I actually think if you go to a company and you say, I know what problem you're trying to solve. And I can help you solve it. And like, I may not look different. I may not look the same as what you thought you wanted, but I can solve this problem. And here's why yeah. they will hire you every single time. Hmm. Um, and you'll end up being one of the best hires ever because you are a good fit for what they're trying to solve. And they will pay you what they are willing to solve that problem for. And you will take it because it's solving something you know you want to do because you've yeah. identified your value and what's interesting to you. And so it makes for a better fit overall. So you would you'd argue what most people get wrong about um, career or progression in career is uh, they fail to find what they're uniquely good at and sell themselves to actually solving that problem in different companies. That's one. Okay. That's the sort of like underlying, like, yes, most people make that mistake. Then number two, which is when plotting how to uh, yield the most amount of value for what you can uniquely do, hmm. people overweight income early, right? which is what you're talking about on Saturday. Right. You're not worth anything until you're worth something. Right. And so you need to work to be worth something. And so the analogy right. I kind of provide is like, 
you know, you're not a great, I don't know, I'm not really a super sports guy, but people seem to understand this. You're not a great football player out of the womb, <laughs> right? You gotta go to the gym. You gotta go study stuff. And then you become an amazing football player and you're, you're very valued. <clears throat> Some people have a disproportionate likelihood of being successful because they were born big, but a person who's playing like an offensive line, for example, these massive humans would not make a good wide receiver. They have different skills. They do right. things differently. They care about it differently, but they all went to the gym and they all studied different things and they all became the best version of themselves over time. And people tend to get the order of operations wrong on that. So to be fair and kind of pushing back a little bit from the perspective of a, say a new grad, right? How do I trust a company that will take a long-term approach in terms of like continuously appreciating me growing in knowledge and expertise, right? Like, yeah, I can take a job. I, my mindset is build equity myself. I want to learn. But how do I trust the company actually gave me the appreciation through compensation someday? Yeah, so I suppose that's the third mistake. Um, they're okay. not going to. Mm. Companies are motivated to uh, yield as much revenue for as low cost as possible, mm. which means that they want to pay people as little as possible always. That is, right. they, they may like the people working there may not want that, but like literally those are the mechanics of a company. Right. And so you to optimize for a company supporting you well over time is a massive mm. mistake because your incentives are not aligned. Mm. That's a failing idea. However, people are inherently social creatures that want to help. Mm. And so what you should be optimizing for early in your career is working for a person mm. who will invest in you and help you. And it may end up being that you don't work at that same company for right. 25 years, which nobody does. But that yeah. person who is helping you also is not going to work at that company for 25 years. And that person has a network of other people and will work at other companies and build that network. <clears throat> and the higher quality person that you find, the higher quality network you will find. And the higher quality network that you find, the higher quality opportunities that you will find. And the higher quality opportunities that you find, if you understand your value, the higher potential value creation you will have exposure to. Right. And the beautiful thing is, you know, the fact we are having this conversation uh, on my podcast, on our podcast, is a manifestation of this, actually, right? Like, I work at Clavio. I don't work at Clavio now. <laughs> Haven't been for three years, but yeah. know, we're still in touch and uh, connecting with each other. Uh, very yeah. deep level, and, actually. So Yeah. And uh, this is, I credit, I, I mentioned earlier, I credit Reed Hoffman's startup of you. His whole thing is like, the best quality people, like companies are just amalgamations of people. They are ideas that people come together and work on. And so it's tr it must be true that any good company will have good people. And right. if that's the case, then like you're the highest likelihood that you have to finding a good company is by being connected to good people. So optimize for people. And his suggestion is find the smartest person you know as early as you can and do anything they want you to do. <laughs> mm. And if you do a good job, they will you know invest in you and keep you around and expose you to other people. And eventually you become one of those people that people want to go work with. And I think that that's 100% correct. Right. So to flip this around, to frame this, this answer around a little bit. So, you know, we're talking about the biggest common mistakes that people make in their earlier careers. To flip around, like, what's the device you want to give to them? Is it basically avoid them, not doing them? Uh, what's the other device you want to give yeah. um, young people? Do, like, brands, company brands matter less than it seems, number yeah. one. So like most people are like, well, I got to go work for like, I'm, I'm using one example because we're in technology. One of the big, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Google, whatever else is. And it's like, yep, Again, you will meta. Meta, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it shows how old I am. Uh, you, like you will, yeah, like you'll make a little bit more than your peers for now. And like, yeah, you'll have this badge on your logo, on your resume, but substantively, you will not learn as in much. And so if you draw a curve out of like what your value over time looks like. X-axis is age, Y-axis is like, you know, value. You want an exponential curve. So it starts right. slow and then later on it gets really steep and gets really, really, really big. Right. And that's the sort of mark of like learning early and growing a lot. But most people actually end up choosing a logarithmic curve, which is they find, you know, the best thing that they can possibly get, but their, their knowledge and value gets capped and they get stuck at this kind of like big company middle level for a long time. Yeah. And you know, over time, I think people end up having a higher quality of life when they start with less and appreciate living with less and end up having more that they can give and contribute and like invest in their passions versus being conditioned to having more and then constantly chasing to try and find, you know, 
that same life forever. Yeah. So that's like brand of company matters less than you think. Optimize for hiring manager, uh, especially in your 20s. Optimize for hiring manager, not job. Hmm. Because guess what? How? See, well, actually, you're fairly young and you might, this might break my test, but is your current job the same as your first job? In terms of what? In terms of titles? Like and what? Scopes? No, no, no. In ter- yeah, scope, like what you're doing. Very different. Really? Okay. And yeah. so I've never met a person whose first job is the same as their current job, provided they've been working more than like three or four years. I mean, I'm kind of a testament to your philosophy is I kind of optimize for knurling a lot, uh, getting shit on by yeah, by, by work in Clavio. And I grew much faster than a lot of people uh, in my age. So, you know, that's right. Yeah, so. And then people, then you get in podcasts like this, people are like, how'd you do all these things? It's like, well, I basically just failed a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I basically just did things and tried and like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think like the big takeaways are like, number one, don't optimize for brand of company, optimize for like what you can learn, which means number two, optimize for hiring manager and, and the quality of people that you would work with, not yeah. what you would do. Because right. You can change what you would do. Humans are wildly, wildly adapted. And like you are too. Yeah. Um, and I think number three is you should look for... Each decade of your career should have a different optimizing metric. The right. first optimizing mm-hmm. metric is like, <clears throat> I don't know, like insights learned per day or whatever. Right. The second should be um, basically like probably insights taught per day. Because if you have the opportunity to learn a lot, you'll have the opportunity to teach a lot and that's valuable. Right. And then the next one should be like, <clears throat> you know, like compensation per insight, say which ultimately means you're like you're making good decisions, which can get applied by like running a company or a di- division of a company. You like efficiently make good calls or maybe you get into investing and like, you know, you make good choices along the way. But no. but those things end up providing the exponential curve instead of the logarithmic curve. And that's a better career architecture to have. All three of us are fans of Ray Dalio's new book, Principles for Dealing with Changing World Order. The book is essentially trying to derive insights for our future by examining the big history of the last 500 years the rise and fall of major empire, the big economic cycles. Jake, I know you recently finished the book. So what's the most interesting thing you learned? I think, I guess like the most interesting thing to me is that there is a relatively predictable cadence that defines the rise and fall of the number one position in terms of like a given state. That I guess like intuitively, I found this book originally because I was like, I literally had the prompt in my head, like, why is the Roman Empire not in charge anymore? Like, there has to, and all the other ones, there has to be, like, some way to understand this. And, like, literally, this thing showed up. I'm like, holy smokes, it's a very convenient answer to my question. And I think just, you know, I'm sure it's nitpickable by people who are more in tune with history than me, but it is a very compelling and structured argument that I have difficulty arguing with. And the fact that it exists, I think, is the most surprising thing to me. So I guess one question I have on that is, it's a great book. I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. What's something that you really disagree with, Jake? Is there anything you read and you're like, I don't think that's how it works or, you know, I don't think he's right about that prediction? I mean, like, honestly, not materially, which is one of the things that made me so enamored by it. I guess like I'm a fanboy of sorts. No, <laughs> like, it's just very difficult to argue with. Uh, it's just like rooted in logic very, very well. I think the, what I'm thinking about right now, which is a different question when you look at the world today, in fact, this the last week he wrote that we are entering late stage five, early stage six, which in the book's context is uh, conflict, uh, military conflict in the world. And I actually was talking to my father this week about this. I think about, I need to learn more about it, but the Bay of Pigs episode, I think in the 60s in the United States was basically, for those who may not be familiar, this is when there was like a very heightened conflict and tension with Russia. Russia occupied Cuba um, they had moved nuclear missiles to Cuba, which was within striking distance of the United States. And it was like, you know, this is like they were teaching kids to hide under desks in school. It was like it was pervasive in society that we were going to die from nuclear missiles launched by Russians. And I don't specify Russians here for any reason outside of they were like actors at the time. Right. Um, and so, like, we didn't have a nuclear crisis. So like what happened? And, you know, again, I need to learn more about the specifics, but a lot of people credit JFK for probably in a combination of covert operations and diplomacy, getting us out of it, obviously not JFK's administration. And so it gives me a lot of hope that there is a path where all of this, you know, some of it could be like deus ex machina, where like some <laughs> set of humans figure out what to go do. But 
gosh, like the more half, I got kind of the impression in the United States at the time, it was a much more unified domestic political atmosphere. And so making choices like that and getting them on the same page was not as hard. Now we are more polarized than ever. So I'm nervous that we won't be able to rally. And it's not only just the United States where that's true across Europe. You know, you guys would know more about this than I would given um, how much time you spent studying it. But obviously in China too, there's polarization, but there's just massive consolidation of power. So it doesn't yield itself the same way. It's just not as easy anymore to get everyone on the same page. And as a result, I think people are not as willing to take the sort of like morally best path, but more self-interested best path for their party, which will tend to create more polarized perspectives, which should theoretically create more diverse perspectives, which is the right breeding ground for conflict. (laughs) So I'm a little nervous right now in a geopolitical and long-term macro perspective, but I'm hopeful that, you know, there are moments in the past that our various states or these various states can learn from to choose a sort of more peace-oriented path forward. Yeah, yeah. I think think we're all a little bit nervous about the way things are right now. And a couple days ago, Seed and I actually had a call with a a professor at NYU who lives in China, but is from the US. And he's actually ever the optimist. He really thinks that we can learn from our past and that the world really cannot decouple and we're not going to deglobalize and go to war and do all these crazy things. But I don't know. I think it's kind of scary what may may not happen. We already ran out of time. So the last thing I would say about this is... I hope people start caring less about feeling good, but actually do good. Don't uh, try to optimize for occupying the moral high grounds. The reality is very nuanced and messy, right? So That's a good uh, cue up for game theory and how all of this plays out in yeah. all of this. But we'll have to save that for the next time. Cool. Wow. That was a lot of wisdom, Jake. Really appreciate you coming on to the show, talking about the world, talking about career and sharing your story with our listeners. Yeah, it's great to have you. Yep. Thanks for Thank uh, you so much for having me and letting me share all the things I got wrong. My life mission I have defined as learning, failing, and succeeding enough to teach other people how to do it better than me. So the fact that I have failed enough to have something to say is makes me very proud. And the fact that I had the opportunity to share it here also makes me proud. So thank you. Thanks so much. 